0: I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about.
1: Okay, I, I think we're live. So great, we've made it. <laughs> we've had a lot of fun with cameras because uh, every, every time we set up in this special arrangement, interesting things seem to happen. So uh, Jackie, you are absolutely fine. You're in, you're in the screen now and yeah, uh, we, can, we can see you. The important thing is this is relaxed and chatty. You're in the inner sanctum of the UK column. And we take the opportunity to relax here and just just be ourselves. So, you're able yeah. to do the same. And if you've got a cup of coffee with you, that's good.
2: Yeah. All right. Well,
1: yeah. we we'll just uh, just let Debbie. Um, uh, sorry, I'm just going to move on through a couple of slides. Sorry, Debbie. Hold on. Um, you've got a little bit more that you wanted to just cover in extra time. So we'll give you the opportunity to do that, and then we'll we'll get uh, Jackie talking. So. There you are, NPR, Debbie. What have you got?
0: Yeah, so I was I was watching um, I was watching the disasters that are unfolding in Gaza, and uh, woke up to find out that all communications were down, and Tedros was speaking from the WHO, people from the United from UNRWA were talking, people from pretty much every aid organisation were saying that they were completely cut off and that they had no contact. With any of their um, aid workers, no one had contact with anybody, which I thought was really strange. Because if anybody would have a WHO preparedness plan, UN preparedness plan, why haven't they made plans for satellite phones, etc.? Mm. So I was really surprised when I was watching Al Jazeera and watching mm. BBC, who were reporting live at the time from inside Gaza. So I. My brain wasn't calculating. It was like, why? how can they do that? But even if they can do that, and they've got a satellite phone, why are they not offering that to the WHO or to the Red Cross or for humanitarian aid? Why are they broadcasting to my front room? So I sent a letter. I spoke to you, didn't I, Brian, about it? And you suggested Mm -hmm. that I wrote a letter to Tim Davey under Freedom of Information. Which I did. And um, there's the letter just plainly saying, you know, your reporter, Rishdi um, Abaluf was talking direct from uh, Han Yunus, Gaza, could be heard clearly. Um, how, how were they managing to do that when there was a blackout everywhere else? And it, the interesting thing was the reply that I got, because I know that a lot of people had replied about the Andrew Bridgen um, debacle and all of those banners being shown on screen, and they all got a generic. Uh, reply to their complaint quite quickly. However, mine has gone to the BBC legal team, uh, Information Rights BBC legal team. So watch this space. I still don't know the answer, um, yeah, but Alex, I will let you know as soon as I hear.
1: Alex, what's your thought? I was very interested in this. I mean, um, obviously, to communicate, they can have dedicated um, ground to satellite Communication system, so I could easily understand they can communicate, but it does seem amazing they're so shy of this question that it it goes through, uh, it goes in as an FOI and the legal team.
2: Yes, it will depend on what their legal team uh, as a whole, their legal department, understand by information rights, which will be the team within the legal department. Um, I expect some of the other things they cover will be um, can we disclose this information? and who has copyright over this information. So they probably do get their fair share of FOI requests. But how were you able to broadcast? It's quite a stretch to call that a matter of information rights in a legal sense, isn't it?
1: Yeah. As as somebody else pointed out um, while we were doing the main part of the news, um, Tim Davey responded to me in an email saying that he got a lot of emails and it, therefore he couldn't respond to them all. Um, so he was responding to me, yes. but he also chose not to answer my question. So <laughs> I, I I can't respond to you because I get so many emails, but mm. I am responding. The flunkies
2: will do that for me. Yeah,
1: <laughs> the flunkies absolutely. Right. Okay. Well, there's there's a very interesting question, and I I've got to also highlight I've I found this business about the communications fascinating because of course the BBC, as we've just shown, we've verified, was saying. The people in Gaza um, were looking for instructions as to where they could go that were safe. And the, the principal communication for those messages from the Israeli side was coming over social media. And then we saw a couple of days ago that the whole of the, um, the Internet network had, had gone down or been taken down. So that channel to warn people of raids coming in had been taken away from them. Now, you
2: know, the right man to talk about this in more detail, if we can get hold of him again, is former Ambassador Peter Ford, who, although being better known for having been our ambassador in Bahrain and especially then in Damascus, uh, had a spell with Anwar on the Palestinian issue. So whether he was in Gaza or simply had good comms with them, he will certainly be able able to tell us what the state of Communication was some years ago.
1: Yes, Uh, it's a really good idea. We'll see what we can do on that, Alex. So, um, Debbie, very quickly, because I want to get back over to uh, Jackie as our our guest today. But uh, what was the what was the other material we got here about the NHS data?
0: Yeah, well, just very quickly, with all that Ben's been saying, obviously, about Palantir, and we know a lot about Palantir, none of it good. um, It was interesting to see on Laura Kunzberg's show, um, although that was hosted by Victoria Derbyshire this week, um, Alex Karp, the CEO of Palantir, who says that the sale of the NHS data is up to the government. uh, And basically, they get away scot-free. Of course, there's nothing to see here, nothing to worry about Palantir. It was a very disturbing piece actually Um, so if anybody hasn't seen it have a look at it and then um, NHS virtual wards as well we're now going to be treating thousands of patients at home that have heart failure Um, so virtual wards we know are basically it's your bedroom your bed, so that's a little NHS story, and then a good story this week, I think, and and very significant in that the plans to close the ticket offices um, has all fallen apart, and now, thank goodness, thanks to a public consultation. So well done, everybody! You see, it does make a difference. Uh, well done, because now we'll still get ticket offices, and of course, for the vulnerable, elderly, and disabled. These are absolutely vital. Um, I know that there's been a lot of talk about the COVID inquiry and I will touch on the COVID inquiry when it comes to Dominic Cummings and all that's been going on in the last couple of days. But um, a few days ago, uh, a top civil servant couldn't recall while he turned on his WhatsApp disappearing messages during COVID. Um, Highly uh, suspicious, don't you think? Because he was... um, he was in the Dominic Cummings era. And if you go to the next screenshot, I mean, just feel free to to um, freeze the screen. But it's all very strange. Why, why would he switch the disappearing message function off? Um, very strange.
1: And well, then I finally, just, I, just, I just can't, sorry, I just on, can't Brian. think, Debbie, that's such a difficult question, why he would do Isn't that. Isn't it? Do you think it might be connected with wanting messages to disappear?
0: I think so, Yeah. I I do actually think (laughs) the evidence is just gone in a puff of smoke. But, of course, we know Dominic Cummings is is having a lot to say, so I will report on that next week. Um, But my final little story, well, actually, there's two final little stories, but my first final little story is the smallest little police station Uh, has now opened um, in Crawley. Um, apparently there's been a spate of stabbings And this little booth Which is really no bigger than a TARDIS Like one of the old blue police boxes um, This is opened in Crawley In response to the stabbings Well I'm not quite sure what happens If there's somebody in there yeah. all the time Or if you have to knock on the door Or whatever But um, that's probably it, a sign of of things to come And on a surreal. final note Actually the final, the final note Has to be to me because apparently I'm hunkered down already. As you know, I'm a flood victim. So we're hunkered down for Storm Kieran, which is about to hit us in the next few hours, tonight, tomorrow. So if I'm flooded this time next week, Southwest water, I'm watching you. But apparently straight after Storm Kieran, Storm Debbie is on the way. And it's even spelt the same way as my name, D-E-B-I. So Storm Debbie is set to make landfall this weekend and I just want Southwest Water to know I'm watching you.
1: <laughs> All right, thanks for that. Well, um, Jackie, let's come back over to you and thank you very much for uh, joining in for extra time. Um, you, you gave us a lot of information in that little run through. Um, I'll, I'll just start off. I'm sure Alex has got some questions as well. But how have you found um, the people who came to you with their stories about what's gone on. What, what were they saying to you? Why did they come to you?
3: Um, why did they come to me? Um, they'd, they'd seen me. Um, I'd, I'd started writing about it for the alternative media and did quite a few interviews um, on, on various uh, shows about it. So people would see it and then word got round and then they started uh, contacting me. Um, and before I knew it, I'd spoken to hundreds and hundreds of people Not all of them wanted to be in the group that I'd set up, obviously. Uh, Some people actually come into the group and then have to leave because they're not ready to be in that sort of group setting, uh, especially if um, their loved ones have been uh, killed recently. Uh, In the group, we use the word killed and murdered. Um, I don't even know why the word euthanasia exists because euthanasia, involuntary euthanasia, is murder. And if you help to euthanise someone... Uh, you'll get the same sort of jail sentence as if you uh, attempt to, to kill someone. If you actually succeed in euthanizing someone, you can get the same jail sentence uh, as you'd get for murder for um, uh, up to life. So I don't really know. It's just like a sugar-coated sort of euphemism, I suppose, euthanasia. I suppose most people see it as something voluntary, but there's, there's, there are the two different types. There's voluntary and involuntary. So uh, involuntary to me is just murder. And this is what's mm. been happening uh, and not just in care homes and hospitals, but also in hospices and sometimes in people's own homes.
1: Yeah. And of course yeah, so, what I'm sorry. Go ahead.
3: Yeah, so and these people who come to me are absolutely in a state of uh, you know shock and devastation. Like I said earlier, it's not just grannies and granddads and mums and dads. It's people who've lost their, their wives and husbands, people who've lost their, their adult children and even, even their children. And one person in the group um, talks about um, their grandchild uh, was euthanized in hospital, which is absolutely horrendous. This person was only 17 years old. So um, it, it, it's, it's really hard to imagine the trauma, you know, that these people have been through. And the ripple effect of these crimes, and they are crimes, is immense, you know. Not only have they lost their the people who are really dear to them, but their own lives are now in tatters. Many of them are unable to work; they just can't function. They can't sleep. They're on medication for insomnia, depression, anxiety. Um, you know, they're, 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 some of them are falling apart, and they are finding it hard to go on. You know, they've, some of them have lost jobs. Uh, they've lost their friends, and their family all think they're mad because they're they're obsessed with you know, getting the, the, the truth and justice. It's, it's a terrible situation. It has a, a terrible far-reaching effect. It's not just one, I'm saying just one person, but it's not a person being killed in hospital. It's not just that person that's affected. It's, it's everyone around them.
1: Right. And, of, of course, there was one um, Romanian lady, Elena, that uh, Debbie and I came into contact with, and she, she, I understand that she's been uh, a key supporter of, of what you're doing and, and the group. So yeah. for Debbie and myself, that was first-hand interaction with a family that had gone through this sort of grief. And of course, that case alone was, was just horrific. In
2: and you, Yeah, if, if you're crooked, you really don't want to re- mess with a Romanian on anything medical, because in my experience, they've got the best medical understanding of a whole population anywhere in the world. You know, they're up there well, with the like Russians. They really yeah, know like- their stuff.
3: Yeah, Elena is actually a nurse as well. So she knew exactly what happened to her husband, Stuart. And um, I've spent a lot of time with Elena. She's in my new film, Playing God. I'm still in the final stages of uh, crowdfunding for that. We filmed it. We've almost finished the editing, but we still need to raise some more funds to get it out there to everyone. Um, Elena uh, tells her whole story in in the documentary. Um, And yeah, her story is absolutely shocking. Her husband was only 54 He was uh, chemically and physically restrained in the hospital. She wasn't allowed to see him until the day that they planned to execute him. They executed him in front of her while she had him in her arms. And it's just like, um, and just to to add insult to to injury, um, uh, they actually, when she got his notes, she found that he'd been given more drugs after the the date of death. So she doesn't even want to think about that what that means so you know you can you can only guess what that what that might mean why they were how it had been recorded that he had been given more midazolam, more morphine he'd already been given hundreds of milligrams of it by this point um, but why would they give it to someone after their death doesn't make any sense the only option well there are several options but most of them she doesn't really want to even think about um, but the, the thing is, you know, like I said, a lot of these people feel they can't go on, but quite ironically, it's their, 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 their fury and their, their upset that is, that keeps them going, you know, um, they, some of them are going legal or trying to, but the problem is when these, a lot of people say, oh, why don't they go to the police? Well, most people do go to the police in this situation. The police do not want to know, um, Uh, lawyers don't want to help very very few lawyers will even touch this sort of stuff because they'll be up against not only the NHS but the government because it's the government that hands down these protocols to the NHS Um, so once the lawyers realise that um, they back away and some lawyers have said well the the hospitals have done nothing wrong because they're following the protocols they're following the nice guidelines they weren't listening
2: in their first term at law school then were they about what their job is if they come out with the government can do what it likes
3: yeah so they don't want to they don't want to risk it it's too risky for them um and as we know there's the these no win no fee things they don't even seem to exist anymore um but Mm. i know that if they do think they've got less than a 50 percent chance of winning they're not even going to enter into a, a that kind of arrangement so um Many times I've wanted to stop as well, you know. We, I've had stuff going on in my life that kind of has been difficult at times and I just think every time I get drawn back into it by another person coming to me with another story and uh, and, and you can't, I just feel I can't let, let these people down. And, and make- Jackie,
1: it's, it's not just um, taking information and investigating the story, is it? Because these people, the moment they start to interact and speak, they actually need counselling they need support and that i know is another i'm going to call it a burden that sounds a bit unkind but that's the reality of it that when you've got terribly distressed people uh when when you try and help them um you've got to you've got to deal with them on several different levels you're trying to get information but also you're trying to comfort them and to uh keep them uh keep them going and keep them fighting and this this can be a very very onerous very tiring thing to do so i'm i'm sure it's put you under a lot of pressure from that
3: well, aspect yeah, alone i'm not alone because um within the group now people are all talking to each other um and uh, and helping each other and supporting each other and they're all at different stages of their journey some people have just lost someone uh, other people lost someone years ago and 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 they're all kind of helping and advising and supporting each other and sharing information um so a couple of people have gone legal and they they are progressing with it um but we were kind of hoping at some point to get maybe some kind of class action or group litigation order i think it's called in the, in this country if possible so we're looking into that but you know these things cost money and 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 they're hoping you know the people who've come up with these um these uh, policies they 're just hoping that that I think I said earlier that 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 the people who who are uh, victim to it to them that will um, will give up or run out of money or die preferably before it gets anywhere near
2: a courtroom yeah. um, that, that's like the vdps isn't it uh, the vaccine damage payment scheme to string yeah. people out and you know give them the yeah. idea that they, they won 't be able to jump through all the hoops
3: yeah yeah and, and my my second film playing God um is a kind of broader look at medical democide in, in the UK, again, over the last 50 years. So it's mm-hmm. giving people um, a platform. Um, one of the main contributors is Joan Bai, who I think you've had on UK Column before, and um, she's been fighting for justice since 1978 when her daughter, yeah. her 12-year-old daughter, Helenor, was killed in hospital, um, used as a, a guinea pig, basically, for a, for a new drug called Epilin. Um, and like I said, you know, the... the it, it, it's just it's just terrible. Um, I, I, I call this recent spate of, of um, culling uh, the medazolam murders. a lot of people refer to it as that, but it's not just medazolam that they're using. Um, the, the other thing I forgot to mention earlier was uh, that this cocktail of drugs is used in in some states in America as an execution um, uh, recipe, and, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, so, Jackie, so- it
1: was it was Dr. Mark Jones was the first person who talked to me about that and uh, yeah. at the time he told me uh, you know it just seemed difficult to get your head around it but it, of course it was absolutely factually it was correct
2: yeah i mean, yeah, the, I mean the indicated protocol in in intensive care is uh, if it's used correctly at the proper dose is, is as i understand it is people who would otherwise you know not be able to maintain steady breathing because of trauma shock or whatever else are being kept in this subdued consciousness, precisely so their body has a fighting chance. But that's a yeah. double-edged sword, isn't it? Because that medicine can very easily be misused to suppress people's breathing when they're trying to live. Well, uh, a
0: benz- well that's benzodiazep- the whole idea. Yeah. Sorry, that, that's the whole idea of morphine and midazolam. If you, but midazolam um, is an opioid. Um, uh, sorry, morphine is an opioid and midazolam is a benzodiazepine. So when you use these two drugs in conjunction with each other, it will automatically depress that person's respirations. So if somebody has a respiratory illness or a respiratory disease or is, is having struggling breathing, then that will depress their respirations. What a lot of nurses told me that was going on in hospitals was that they were using midazolam and morphine, they thought quite fairly, um, to put people on respirators, because obviously people would have to be sedated. It's a very scary procedure going onto a respirator that you need to put a tube down into the throat and intubate that patient and breathe for them. So many were given midazolam and morphine. And of course, this just knocked off their breathing even more.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And of course, you know, um, the excuse that that massive order uh, in early 2020 was for that is, is a nonsense because, uh, of course, the ventilators were stopped being used quite early on. I think it was January 21. So and it seems to me that most of the uh, the killings were in uh, 2021. I can see this that. Is, just this is Dr.
2: Luke's <laughs> notorious good death section, isn't it? It's a, a question session. I mean, how, yes, how so Hancock he, thought he could yes. uh, avoid uh, that coming to light, you know, that the whole of the free media was a buzz with that good death exchange how we can yes. then say to a court i'd never heard of the drug you know, that that takes some some chutzpah doesn't it
3: it really really does i mean that that exchange is ex- shocking and it is probably the first time a lot of people have heard the phrase "a good death which um is, which is simply a, the translation
2: of euthanasia
3: yeah from the greek word euthanatos which means a happy death or a good death and, um, and it's, it's a euphemism, basically, just to, to kind of soften yeah. the blow. The, the
2: word was appropriated. I mean, in, in the Puritan days, there were books entitled Euthanasia, but it was about preparing yourself spiritually to meet your maker. And the idea yeah. was have a long, happy and fulfilled life and be prepared to die when the time comes.
3: Yeah. you know, And well, sometime well, they, around
2: the, the, the Rockefeller early 20th century medical takeover, it gets appropriated in the same way as eugenics. You know, uh, proper breeding gets appropriated to mean uh, let's let's dispatch you mercifully.
3: Yeah, yeah I mean, what, what what a lot of people don't realise is it's not a happy death at all. The medazolam sedates the person, so they look calm and peaceful. Mm. Um, uh, but on the inside, it's not it's not calm and peaceful at all. It's a horrible, horrible death. That's why several states in the US stopped using it as an drug because it was too barbaric and these people were, were being it was prolonged torture that's that's what it's actually known as prolonged torture which uh, no one should have to go through in any situation especially if you're an innocent person um who's not even at the end of your life this this is a lot of the misconceptions oh it's old people it's uh it's people who are terminally ill that are given these drugs when i spoke to one editor back in 2021 and was telling her the whole story. Uh, This was an editor at the Telegraph. She said to me, but you know, this isn't really a story because everyone knows that this is happening. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, everyone knows that people the end of life in 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 icu uh, get a little bit of a helping hand and i'm like well that's a story in itself because that is illegal if that is happening you know well i know it's happening but that but that this editor was kind of saying but you know it's not a big deal you know it happens to loads of people what's the problem and i was like quite, uh, taken aback by that that response and that mm-hmm. is how a lot of, especially younger people think now they think oh it's okay but even if you are terminally ill even if you are 100 years old that doesn't mean that someone else has got the right to hasten your death no. and end your life
2: no. we've mentioned yeah. dr I, mark jones for our for our uh, newer viewers uh, he's a gentleman in chester who addressed a 2017 conference of ours called dying for good health that you'll find on the website and you'll also find an interview called the mechanics of modern murder which she did with brian and several other people uh, brian interviewed several others for it But without getting involved in the horrendous details, there the the key point is it was completely separate from COVID before COVID. Midazlam, as Jackie said, was not the means used. But here's the bit that interests me, Jackie: is do you see anything financial popping out here in the sense that Dr. Mark Jones did? He was quite certain that between crooked lawyers looking at the wills and some very wicked nurses in some of the care homes there was an agreement at a local level okay this one's got a, a ripe estate, uh, so string out the care and when the estate turns into debts we're going to suffocate them and it would take the form according to him and there's enough testimony of it of you know withholding food and drink letting them th- uh, thirst away or suffocating them with a pillow
3: yeah, right? and, yeah.
2: and that that was the that, that was all described in great detail by mark and several others not just from chester but that was a particular cluster that was well bottomed out by the mid 2010s In this COVID round, do you see the same thing happening, even if it's only at the level of NHS managers thinking you're the kind of person who's going to cost the government a lot?
3: It's absolutely all about the money. Um, And quite strangely, when I was making uh, the film A Good Death in 2021, I didn't prompt anyone. There was not There was no script. Um, I hadn't met some of the people before even. I just went to their house, sat down, chatted to them. Every single one of them said, when I said, why do you think this is happening, they all said money. And um, a lot of people that I know have looked into it now. Um, uh, an excellent researcher called Stuart Wilkie um, can, can speak at length on this as well. Uh, yeah, it's absolutely all about the money. So uh, just take, for example, my dad, whose uh, life was... Um, uh, brought to an abrupt halt in twenty in September twenty twenty one. I just worked out that just say if if he was to live another twenty years, which he should have done, he was seventy eight when he was um, when when his life ended, and um, they've saved half a million pounds on him alone. That's just in his various pensions that he's got coming in. Ironically, he had an, a pension from the NHS as well as a state pension and from the council. So because um, he's worked in various. Roles. So, um, yeah. So that's just on one person.
2: Um, and you know, Jackie, from... we're one of the very few media platforms. Thanks to Mike, who has a great financial mind and uh, ability to represent it graphically. We're one of the very few who've done the total pie chart some years ago, with a great big yellow slice, a third of the pie, four trillion or so. This is our biggest liability, or the government's rather, unfunded liability: mm-hmm. pensions. What are we going to do? And Mike asked that question open-endedly. No one was able to answer it.
3: Yeah, well, they're, they're dealing with that right now, aren't they? So, and there was actually a rather, rather uh, joyful little story in the uh, reported by the BBC back in 2021 saying how they're saving uh, millions and millions of pounds. Now all the old people are dying of COVID. Obviously, um, we knew then and a lot of people know now these people weren't dying of, of, of some faux virus. They were actually being, um, being euthanized. And mm-hmm. yes, they are saving lots of money, so they must be very, very pleased with themselves. The plan—the plan is working.
2: This right. is the same generation, young professionals, millennials, who I won't tar them all with the same brush, but they—they they like saying, "I'm a speck of stardust, and I'm just a bag of meat, and uh, yeah. I'm only here for you know." Okay, traditional religion also and morality also says, "I am only here for the blink of an eye," but the meaning of that is make the most of it for other people you know, but, yeah. and uh, have a fulfilled life. But now it's become in meat space in the real world I'm just a I'm just a blob of dirt I don't really count for much and you know hence you get immediately this running through to to public health you know we take yeah. a one health approach which is just nice language for we don't matter that much more than bacteria
3: well this yeah. is something that's been pushed upon us for the last 500 years that we're that we're um, we're descendants of of monkeys on on a spinning space ball, you know, and that we we're totally insignificant, and the, um, the vastness of everything around us makes us even more in, insignificant. And yeah, and there's also this weird kind of death. I don't know what to call it really, a death cult amongst younger people, yes. where hmm. if someone dies, even in their immediate cir- circle, there's no kind of real uh, emotion or feeling about it. It's just kind of like oh R I P, you know, whoever it is, and and mm. lots of yeah. Social media and it's—I don't know—something very strange has happened with the reporting in in mainstream media as well about all all the, you know, the the sudden and unexpected deaths in the last couple of years. Um, They don't even—they don't even say why the person has died or what they've died of half the time. And and I know as a journalist for the last thirty-eight years that if um, if I'd submitted a story. Um, and didn't have those essential details in about someone's death, it would be thrown right back at me, yeah. you know. These days the stories are very half-baked, and and if you dare to ask anything, oh, well, what happened to the person? What did they die of? You're, you're suddenly some, like, ghoul or something. That's the word that, yeah. that a lot of the, the Twitter bots like to use. Final so I'm, question I'm, I'm
2: from dumb. me, to make sure it goes in the show notes, Jackie. What is the website, if there is one already, where people can donate to help you make the film?
3: Um, I, for, um for For the Playing God film... Uh, we're doing the final phase of the crowdfunding now, just so we can get the film out there. We just need one more little push, and um, it's on Crowdfunder, uh, Playing God UK. It will pop up if you type that in, and you can. I'll donate. make sure that's in
2: the show notes. Thank you.
3: Thank you very much. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Um, one thing um before, but I think I'd just like
0: to add that we've heard so me- so many from so many people that are frightened now to go to the NHS. They're frightened if their relatives are in the NHS. And I was in that position myself when a very close relative had to go into hospital for heart surgery. And I was very worried that because she was very elderly, there was gonna be a DNR put on her notes and um, that maybe after the procedure, I would get a phone call from someone to say that she passed. So um, she told the hospital that basically I, as a trained nurse was watching them. And we've heard from many other people saying that when they've gone into hospital or needed to go into hospital, they've made a point of saying their relative is either a paralegal, a solicitor, a nurse, a doctor, a paramedic. Um or an and academic. to specifically that, that has got say some... I yeah, but to specifically say I, will, I am not consenting to a DNR being put on my notes. Make the statement. Ask the question. Always ask the question because if you ask the question and they know that they're watching you, that you're watching them, and the other thing to do that we've said many times before, if you are frightened, is to make a living will, and there's plenty of um, references to that in my blogs. So if you just put yeah. living will into the search bar, It should come up with the details. About half
2: a year ago, didn't you have in your blog once that somebody described that they just made up on the spur of the moment in a bedside conversation with an an arrogant consultant. I am Professor Smith. Oh, bow scrape. You are of the professional classes. Oh, yes, I'll I'll treat you decently then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah,
0: exactly that. And, Um, And, you know, but even when Eleanor, as a trained nurse, did it. I mean, she wasn't, she had... The interview, by the way, on the column is called No Time to Grieve, if anybody wants to look at Eleanor's uh, incredible, most moving video. But she explained, too, that while she didn't have any time to grieve, she also felt the guilt. And it's the guilt that so many of these relatives are are, are feeling because what could we have done something better? Could we have stopped it? Could we have said something? So, yeah, say you're a paralegal, say you're a professor, say you're a nurse, say one of your family is, and then they do seem to realise or acknowledge that somebody is watching them. We shouldn't have to do it.
1: I of think just an idea. Of course You're not. Right. I've got to. I've got to come back in because we're we're at the end of our our time. Um, I'm going to say, Jackie, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, uh, I'd like that this particular uh, extra time is made public as well because. Um, Normally, it's for subscribers, but I think this should be made public. Uh, We'll make sure that your sites go up, as Alex has said, so that we can encourage people to get involved with the crowdfunder. And of course, the other thing that we've talked about is getting some of these people um, to join us um, in a UK column um, event. Um, so that they can tell their own stories, because I think that's where the power is. But we're certainly going to do more with you, but I've just got to say very nicely we're out of time today. Thank you. Okay. All right, Alex and Debbie, thank you very much as well for joining us. And uh, we just say to our audience, serious, serious topics, but we're all adults. We need to speak about this. We need to understand what's happening, because if we don't understand what's happening, we can't do anything about it. So we need a good storm, Debbie, to whip these people up and get them paying attention. I'll leave it to you and storm, Debbie. Okay. thank you very much. Bye bye. Bye bye.